You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Traditional therapies for many neurologic conditions often are fraught with significant morbidity and risk for our patients. Are there newer techniques out there that may help to lessen this risk? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. John Lee, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Lee. Deep brain stimulation, this is something that I've heard I don't know much about. Can you tell us about this technique? Deep brain stimulation, the analogy I would give to my patients is kind of like a pacemaker for the brain. More patients, I think, are familiar or at least may have friends even that have pacemakers with a wire that goes to the heart, and then there's a battery implanted under the clavicle or under the collarbone. And so deep brain stimulation is really very similar. There's a wire that goes into the brain to the correct target, and then there's a battery under the collarbone. With this, we're able to treat movement disorders, the most common being Parkinson's disease. And is this a a very difficult technique in terms of needing great expertise or imaging to position this properly? So from a surgeon's standpoint, this is not something that the average or general neurosurgeon is really doing out in private practice unless they've had some introduction or expertise or fellowship in this particular procedure just because this is not something that we were trained to do. It's very different than the traditional neurosurgery. I guess the best way to describe it is in some respects it's much more finicky and consumes more time than some of the other procedures that we do. This is a growing field and there are more and more practitioners. I think of perhaps an analogy to electrophysiologic studies with the heart. Is there much trial and error where you need to find a specific spot? Initially, depending on which particular subcortical target of the brain that you're trying to reach, it can be very time-consuming and you need the expertise of multiple disciplines. So the surgeon is involved, but you also need a good radiologist who can get you the right sequences to get you in the vicinity. But even when you're passing the wires to the right spot of the brain, even though the, the MRI got you to the right vicinity, now you need the physiologist in the operating room also to get you into the exact location. So we have in the operating room not only the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist, but also a physiologist. And the neurophysiologist is doing detailed recordings. I mean, these are sub-100 micron recordings of the deep structures in the brain. And here we're trying to differentiate individual neurons and their firing rates and their firing patterns to determine exactly where we are. So, for example, the, the subthalamic nucleus is very small. And even within the subthalamic nucleus, we want to be in the appropriate area The patient is awake during the entire surgery, and while awake, we'll actually move their arm or ask them to perform tasks in order to be sure that we're in the correct spot. Interesting. So the patient is awake and helping with the placement. Yeah. So fortunately, with the good anesthesiologists today, they can make them very sedated for the more invasive part of the procedure, such as the incision and the drilling, and they can be more awake when we need them with the wires in their head. Is there a risk for any collateral damage to surrounding uh, brain tissue? We generally say 1% to 2% risk of hemorrhage, but the risk for a catastrophic hemorrhage is very, very low, less than 1%. So sometimes we'll see a dot of blood, but it's not significant. But generally, we've become more and more safe as time, as time has gone on. 
Now, the other disadvantage of the procedure is that the patient will have implanted hardware in for the rest of their life with the battery and the wires. And for debilitated Parkinson's patients, this is not an insignificant problem for them. Generally, patients also have to be cognitively sufficiently with it to participate in the maintenance that it requires. It's not like you have to wash it every day since it's all under your skin, but still you can't bump into it or knock it apart. It's not something for every Parkinson's patient. It sounds like this is very specialized technology. Is this something that is best done also at centers of excellence? You know, obviously I'm biased since I'm practicing in a university center. However, I think it can be safely done outside of the university as long as there's a dedicated team with the knowledge and insight and experience. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Lee, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, about deep brain stimulation and its use in Parkinson's disease. What type of uh, efficacy do we see with this type of procedure? The most dramatic responses we see are in tremor. And so that's really the most impressive finding. However, what's paradoxical in Parkinson's patients is that their tremor, although that's the most obvious thing when you look at their hands, it's not the most debilitating feature. So some of their rigidity and bradykinesia really are what bother them the most when they can't initiate or make the movements that they want to. And so Fortunately, that also seems to get better. Another feature that seems to get better is the amount of dependence they have on levodopa. Now, levodopa was such a dramatic discovery, and when it was introduced, actually movement disorder surgery died in the 1960s. When levodopa was discovered and was being broadly applied, everybody thought Parkinson's disease surgery was, was over. But then it experienced this resurgence because we found out that levodopa has complications. Long-term levodopa use is associated with dyskinesias or these unusual movements. And with the placement of the stimulators, we're able to get them patients on lower doses of levodopa, and we see disappearance or improvements in their dyskinesia. So the symptom cluster and profiles are somewhat complicated and require a good working knowledge of Parkinson's disease, its variety of manifestations, and also a very good neurologist who can determine and work with you and see who the right patient is to go on with surgery. And as a primary care doctor, I'm certainly aware of some of the orthostatic hypotension and other side effects that you can see with Cinemet and, and related medications. Are there other types of dyskinesias or tremors that have uh, been looked at? Yeah, so the second most common population is, are the patients with essential tremor. And these are really the patients that you see, the younger patients who just have tremor and they may have a familial history of this, and most people seem to get by without anything. We might try a little, in the old days, you try a little propanolol, but I would say the majority of patients do not need surgery. However, every once in a while, you have a patient whose tremor is so severe, it affects their head, their hands, and in those patients, it's a very good, solid, dramatic response to surgery. And the nicer thing about it also is essential tremor patients, they tend to be younger, and healthier than our Parkinson's patients. It's one of the more dramatic and rewarding procedures because the response is very strong. The patients are very happy with it. And in these younger patients uh, akin to a pacemaker battery needing to be replaced, will they need procedures in the future to keep this going? Yeah, so unfortunately that is one of the limitations currently is that uh, the batteries only last several years. It all depends on your charge requirements and where the lead is placed. But every, let's say, five years, the patient may need a battery replacement. Now, 
There are rechargeable batteries on the horizon that are already being used, for example, in pain surgery for the spinal cord stimulators. So that may make its way up to use in the brain as well. Very interesting. And and speaking of other parts of the body, are technologies like stimulation and gamma knife is that focused radiation that is often used in the brain. Do we see this being used outside the central nervous system, or at least outside the brain? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we go back to or talk about stereotactic radiosurgery, it's the success of stereotactic radiosurgery in the brain that has really helped it to explode with its use outside of the brain. And so a neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. John Adler from Stanford University, actually studied with Lars Luxell and said, why should I stop at the brain? Because Gamma Knife is excellent for use in the brain, and it is the most precise and absolutely the best tool for the brain. However, there are other tools, LINAC-based tools, that can be used in the brain and also elsewhere in the body. And, so the, for example, Dr. Adler has pioneered the use of the cyber knife, and he um, can treat spine tumors, lung tumors, uh, prostate. And so it's a very exciting field. One of the exciting developments in the whole field of deep brain stimulation is it's used for other conditions. And... Movement disorders were targeted as a treatable condition primarily because you can see the benefit. If someone has a tremor, you can kind of measure the amplitude or its rate, and you can just see whether they get better or not. Now, obviously, there are a lot of other neurologic conditions where it's much harder to measure severity. And what we're starting to see now is interest in placing deep brain stimulators for depression. So Medtronic is um, starting a large randomized control trial that is going to be carefully done, led by the psychiatrists, not by the neurosurgeons, but by the psychiatrists to study whether deep brain stimulation can help those severe treatment-resistant depression patients. Now, we're, this is not for your case of the blues or you know, your normal reaction to uh, a life event. I mean, this is for patients who are so severely devastated by their uh, mood disorder that they can't leave the house, they can't function, they can't attend to their daily activities, they have failed all medications, they have failed electroconvulsive therapy. Um, and so in these, this severe subgroup, we are attempting to essentially rewire the brain to see whether their depression can improve. And then focusing on the limbic system, Exactly. Um, some of the anterior frontal cortical circuits, it's very exciting stuff. And it sounds like with Gamma Knife focusing on brain metastases instead of whole brain radiation, this uh, sounds like for depression, the, the difference uh, between ECT giving an incredible shock to the entire brain, and this is much more focused. Yeah, so as surgeons, we care about anatomy, anatomy, anatomy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the... Um, some of our other predictors, I mean, we can continue this analogy. The radiation oncologists, they just aimed at the entire brain and delivered radiation. Whereas neurosurgeons, we said, why should we aim at the whole brain? We just aim it at the tumor because we're surgeons. And similarly, you could say ECT was really picked up by the psychiatrist because it shocks the entire brain. But as neurosurgeons, we're saying, why do we have to shock the whole brain? Let's just deliver the impulse right to where we think the depression center is or the depression circuit. Wonderful. In the last minute that we have, are there any other things on the horizon that we should be watching for? Even within stereotactic radiosurgery, there's an even sharper tool called proton beams. And 
by its physical properties of delivering a heavy particle, there's a ability to become to deliver more radiation even more safely. And we'll see whether that can be used to any clinical benefit uh, in the future at Penn. Well, we've got gamma knife, deep brain stimulation, and possibly other techniques that will help us to treat some uh, debilitating disorders in a much more exact and much safer way for our patients. Uh, I want to thank Dr. John Lee, who has been discussing these techniques with us from the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.